0: Today we look at the Sheep Herders, a forgotten tag team if ever there was one. No, not the Bushwhackers, the Sheep Herders. Luke Williams and Butch Miller were a great example of connectedness within the professional wrestling industry. And they had a great career from the 1960s onwards until they really hit pay dirt in the late 1980s, producing and developing the Bushwhackers characters in the WWF. Wrestling purists may have reviled them, but they have a long history long before they got to the internet. And that's what we'll be looking at today. Forgotten Tag Teams, the Sheep herders. Luke Williams and Butch Miller, forgotten tag teams? You're having a laugh, Troopany. Get your head in gear. They were just inducted to the WWE Hall of Fame. How can they be forgotten? Well, if there was one example of WWE's revisionist history that stands out above all others, it would be the Bushwhackers. The arms swinging, child licking, in the Royal Lumble for four seconds, Bobby Heenan saying they use rope for dental floss, ever losing, unheralded, children's entertainers were not all that they seem. From their debut in 1989, till they finally slipped off the international screens in 1996, with what looked like a Crocodile Dundee tribute act, they were on a high-paying victory lap of a career that took them all over the world. They were the kings of the era territory tag teams, they worked everywhere, for everyone, left crowds aghast, and they did it for born-heel attitude and lashings of violence. It's not what made them famous though. What made them famous was being a pantomime horseback end of the WWE's tag team scene in the early 1990s, a job they did very well, much to the annoyance of pure wrestling fans. Because how else could such a limited pair of grapplers have such a long run in one of the most competitive companies on the planet? Because they knew what they were doing. Hard as that may seem. This isn't the story of the Bushwhackers though, which can be summed up in a few lines. Lost a lot, didn't look good doing it, entertained a lot of children and earned a lot of money. Something wrestling fans forget when it comes to acts like this. This is the story of how they got there. Essentially, this is the story of the New Zealand Sheep Herders, a long-established, internationally-renowned tag team that wrestled all over the NWA territories, New Japan Pro Wrestling, World Championship Wrestling, and with the World Wrestling Council in Puerto Rico. In fact, one of them ended his career as a head of creative for one of the biggest wrestling companies in the world. That's the Sheep Herders, and their story begins in New Zealand in 1966. New Zealand was not a place where professional sport had been taken hold. There was cricket, of course, and rugby union still amateur back then, but there was no working class mass attractions. As Luke Williams explained in a shoot interview not long after their WWF run, there was no TV, no standing companies, and so The Inn was based on geography and luck. Williams happened to live next door to a strongman act who invited him to join up for the new company that turned out to be NWA New Zealand. He would have his debut at Wellington Town Hall. Miller was medically retired from rugby at a young age, and while training at the Wellington and YMCA, he was scouted for wrestling sessions. After a stop start beginning, Where he got put off by some traditional shoot style, the style of the time was heavily influenced by the British and European wrestling and still under Mount Evans rules, it was clear that the Empire had a long shadow, to the point each match being controlled by a police permit. The rules were also enforced by police officers, but also a long shadow on the workers, many of whom have come from the UK and the bastion of British style, the snake pit. Under the circumstances, it was hard not to improve. Without the glimmer of TV lights, they could toil away learning their craft, touring the country in a new market that was teeming with ideas and talent, but very little exposure. The pair would find their new calling an attractive way of life. They began to excel as individuals, main eventing as solo wrestlers, which Miller explained the work rate for a full-timer. Get to the show, assemble the ring, wrestle five five-minute rounds, and maybe a six-round tag, tear the ring down, and move on. As Miller and Williams began touring together, they began tagging together. They'd be called the Dream Team, Sweet William and The Brute, New Zealand's first combination tag team. They would also work territories associated with the office around the Pacific Rim, like Singapore and Bangkok. It was another learning curve. The locals were stiff and unforgiving, and the heat, as in the weather heat, was unbearable. But the long-haired Romeo, Luke was one good-looking one back then, and the wild man were bound to get over, just by being so different. Their heel heat was so good in a supremely kayfabe territory, they could cause riots without much effort. It was just what their opponents would do to them that was the problem. Well, you know, aside from the security disappearing when things got really tough, Butch would work a long series of Peter Maivere, the Rock's grandfather, who was a huge draw on the West Coast. Working out in Samoa, they would have matches on cards with mixed fighting, Butch credits Maivere with developing as a worker and the man who helped them understand what the right heat level was for a match where and when they had overdone it. Getting to North America would be their next goal. They would first travel to Quebec and the Grand Prix promotion owned by the Vachon family and Edward Carpentier. The Vachons must have seen kindred spirits in the team. Lord knows what Carpentier thought of them. It was an eye-opener for them. Having used to companies working a touring loop and the Japanese far eastern system, they were suddenly in a huge urban territory, with all those stars like Andre the Giant and Bruno Sammartino still giving his one promised date a month a thank you to the territory that gave him his break. The Grand Prix company was on fire and running three towns a night. Butch and Luke not only added luster to their resume, it gave them another edge to their style that was coming together as a mix of European wrestling brawling and over-the-top theatrics. They impressed enough to get booked in the United States and Canada by their NWA Hawaii promoter Steve Reckard and Jim Barnett, who had opened up Australia to the American style. Having gotten over there, they followed that up with a run in Stampede Wrestling for Stu Hart. Stu was experimenting with more violent booking style at the time, and the Kiwi's presence was undoubtedly a byproduct of that thought process. It would eventually do the territory in, but for two guys who had their sights set on a long-term wrestling career, Stampede was a great place to continue to grow. Partnered up with the Dynamite Kid in his long-running feud with the Hart family, they looked wild. In fact, they looked bloody furious. With long hair and grimacing faces, they intimidated commentators and generally went about things in a hateful and spiteful manner, employing everything they had learned in the Pacific Circuit. They were also a hit. Though the nights were cold, the car journeys long, it meant a strong bond with the business and their co-workers as they set about paying their dues in the harshest of environments. Steve was a good boss. There was plenty of veterans around to learn from. The Wigan shooter Jack Foley and Archie the Stomper Gouldy, and they thrived on Stu's booking style. Stu repaid their efforts. In 1974 they would win their first titles, the Stampede International Tag Team Championships. The Stampede International Tag Team Championships, Stampede's top tag honours, by beating Bob Pringle and Bill Cody. They would lose and win the titles back in their Stampede stay and would then disappear from the North American scene, returning home to New Zealand for the first national show in the country on the mat. Steve Rickard had begun promoting and put a TV deal in place allowing wrestling to get a firm hold in the country and deliver a revolutionary wrestling show by New Zealand standards that was much more episodic in outlook. Their experience with working long-form feuds in the North American system meant they were a vital part of the show, allowing Rickard to hook storylines around them. After that it was back to Hawaii, though business wasn't great. A supercard with imports from the US would be their saving grace for the trip. Being somewhat unaware of their surroundings, they had often thought of working in the US, where they thought their hybrid technical brawling style would be a hit. But figured that getting a work visa would be an impossible task. A backstage conversation with Buddy Roberts and Roddy Piper enlightened them to the fact that they were already on US soil and had a six-month work visa in their back pockets. Roddy made the call to Don Owens in Portland and one of the biggest best territories in the US opened up to them. Programmed with Hot Rod and a very young Rick Martell, they worked the loop in a heated feud. The loop for the NWA Pacific Northwest stretched from Northern California up through Oregon, Washington and into Vancouver. But the talented and hard-working roster included Piper, Martel, Buddy Rose, and now OVW trainer and wrestling-obsessive Rip Rogers. With a lot of creative freedom and Owens' generous payoffs, it was a great place to grow as a performer. Working main events in hair-versus-hair matches, they'd be trying to outthink their fans on a regular basis. Owens liked the pair. They won the tag-team titles the first week. The shows were a mix of new-school thought process and old-school promotional activities. The main event would be the best of three falls, with an interval in between so Don could sell as many snacks and gimmicks as possible. His brother Elton always had a shoot contest to open the show as he ran run the southern segments of the huge territory. Don paid cash every night, unthinkable for any other territory in the US, and after a 15-month stay, they were on the way to feeling it was time to move on. While they were there, Owens gave them the gift of a name, the Sheep Herders, playing on the New Zealand heritage. As Butch said, it's a good heel name for America. You've always been a cattle country. They would be awesome heels, taking on Piper and Martel on a loop, Inspiring with Hot Rod's infamous promo, where he smashed a beer bottle over his head to show how much the titles and the money that went with them meant to him and his family. Farming history aside, the pair were taking a risk leaving Portland. They were main event all the way and were making good money. But when the time is right, it's right, and they moved on to other promotions with their rough and ready style. And that's the first part of our story on the Sheet-Birds. You've been listening to Telling Stories. My name's James Dupin. You can find me on Twitter at Sheriff LoneStar. You can find the show at Dupin Show on Twitter. And you can find us on Facebook, The Trooping Show, and Patreon, The Dupin Show. Where you can keep the show free forever for everyone. Please go speak with our partners, powerslam.tv, where you get a free month when you use the code Mullet Watch, as well as Indie Empire Magazine. And listen to Sheriff Lone Star and the Deputy of Heartbreaks on Bandcamp. You can find them at bandcamp forward slash Sheriff Lone